1: Deck maintenance isn't fun. Move the furniture and barbecue, sand and prep, paint, seal, or get a low maintenance Trex deck. The only color fade you'll have to
2: deal with is watching the sunset. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. The First Serve, your home of tennis. The Green Life Group, your open space specialist in landscape construction, maintenance, and project management.
1: Here on a Monday night, what a beautiful day outside. I just saw Mike Larkin on the 10 News having a coffee and a pizza, which is an interesting mix. Nine degrees currently. Do take it nice and safe out on the roads. Brett Phillips alongside Sam Groth tonight. We're rugged up.
3: Grothy, good to see you. BP, good to be here. Coffee and pizza, interesting mix. I just had a couple of celery sticks with some peanut butter on to get me through this hour. What? Yeah, I don't know. Got a bit bit
1: of... Not a fan. I thought coffee and pizza was odd. Now, you're telling me you have... What? Celery sticks... With peanut butter.
3: Yeah, unbelievable. Such a good combination. Try it if you haven't. Oh, it's one way to ruin a healthy snack.
1: Wow, there's a couple of combinations that I have not uh, come across. We've got a busy show. Let's get into it tonight. one 736 736 if you want to join us or on the text 043-9811-16. Grothy, the world of tennis, where is it at? 15th of June, I am told. is absolute D-Day for a decision on the US Open. So that is two weeks from today, and it's going to be a big fortnight to uh, see how we get to that point and what happened Stacy Ellis to the USTA uh, Chief Executive for Pro Tennis said if the board decides to go forward with the US Open, she expects it to be held in New York and in its usual spot on the calendar from August 31 so looking at charter flights, uh, limited entourages from Europe, South America and the Middle East, centralised housing daily temperature checks, no spectators I think they've certainly got their head around that now the US Open, fewer on-court officials so certainly, and we'll have a little grab from Guy Forget in just a moment as far as the French Open is concerned there seems to be a little bit more optimism from an operational point of view, but it appears that the stumbling block could still be getting everyone there and getting the players buy-in to travel to New York.
3: Yeah, it's still going to be the hardest thing, isn't it? And you look at everything that's going on in the United States at the moment, obviously it's it's crazy scenes. It's sad to be able to sit here in Australia where we're so lucky in terms of the COVID-19 situation, but having lived in the US for so long to see the civil unrest that's happening now there also, you've got to take yeah. that into consideration with the players the players you're thinking about going over to the States, it doesn't look like a safe environment to travel to right now either. And as you mentioned, maybe they get things going there, but getting everybody in, you know, the White House, we mentioned last week that they said professional athletes were going to be let into the US. I think now they're, or what I'm hearing, on the ground is yeah. that players are going to have to quarantine for 14 days, possibly before yeah. they go in. Now, that's still being debated, but if people have got to go there two weeks early and sit in a hotel room, it doesn't really allow you to prepare properly for a Grand Slam tournament.
1: If the US Open doesn't go ahead, I spoke to three people across the weekend who probably just confirmed what we think. If the US Open doesn't go ahead, probably the the, the likelihood the rest of the year is going to be uh, wiped out. Paul Anacone on the Tennis Channel, in reaction to the Italian Open, confident that they're tournament could now be played in September between the US Open and the French Open to allow a clay court tournament build up to the French. Let's have a listen to Paul Anacode.
2: This is so encouraging. Uh, I wondered what would happen leading into Roland Garros uh, with Roland Garros changing its dates. Are we going to find room for another clay court event? And obviously Rome has stepped up. They want uh, They want to jump in there and play. And boy, this would be such a tremendous message. Uh, for the city and also the entire country of Italy.
1: And Guy Forget, the French Open tournament director, speaking in the last few days to Brett Haber on the uh, Tennis Channel.
4: We are ready. To be honest, Brett, we, we are pretty positive because I think the trend now is, is is going in the right direction. We're still a few months away, and uh, you know we found out that in Italy the bars and the restaurants are opening again, and you know Italy was one of the first places where the virus was was really hurting the people, you know, big time. So it seems like things like getting back in kind of normal now and hopefully within the next few weeks uh, or couple of months, you know, a lot of things will will, will go back to, to, to normal.
1: And as we've said, Grothy, I mean, the French, they, they desperately want to have the French open. Uh, they've got a, a new roof and a lot of money being spent on the Roland Garros site, but a lot of water to go under the bridge. In the last few weeks, though, with restrictions easing, we've seen quite a bit of domestic tennis uh, popping up. The UTR Pro Series in the US. I was watching a bit of Petra Kvitova win the uh, Prague Women's Exhibition. No crab, but she got a trophy, let me tell you. Germany, yeah. Austria, the Adria Tour led by Djokovic through the that's been announced. The Moritoglu Academy Men's Exhibition will be coming up. We've seen the announcement of the Battle of the Brits. be played at Roehampton, the traditional qualifying venue for Wimbledon, including Andy Murray, World Team Tennis, which you've been touching on. We told you last week on the show that Tennis New Zealand uh, across the ditch are also going to be starting up a domestic Premier League. The question is, what's going to happen here in Australia? A lot of our listeners have been inquiring to us, social media, so we thought we'd go straight to the Chief Operating Officer at Tennis Australia tonight, Grothy. Tom Lana. Tom, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Nice to have you on. Obviously, plenty going on in your world at Tennis Australia. An incredible few months for everyone in tennis trying to navigate through this period. But Tom, obviously, depending on how the cards fall with the US Open, determines what we may do in Australia between July and December of this year. What light can you shed on the domestic scene for us here tonight and for our listeners?
5: We've got a heap of players here at the moment. Obviously, we've got all all the Aussies who have come back from the tour who who are in Australia, but we've also got a heap of College uh, college kids who have come back over 200 college kids as well. So there's a big group of players who are basing themselves here, and as, as tennis uh, comes back at a community level, been working on plans to make sure that we've got opportunities for our players to actually you know stay fit, compete, provide the match opportunities uh, until we get greater clarity around uh, what the tour looks like for the rest of the
3: year. Tom, obviously, it's an ever-changing landscape at the moment, and this week we actually heard Nick Kyrgios is due to go. Over to Berlin to play an exhibition alongside the likes of Dominic Team. I mean, obviously, in an ideal world, it'd be great to keep. Players of his profile and be able to get a competition up and running domestically.
5: Yeah, and we're not, we're very, very close to that. So later this week, um, the next week or so, we'll be announcing, you know, a series of uh, of events across Australia, across five cities across Australia to take us through sort of mid to late June through July. We're actually looking at sort of the next three or four months, but obviously we're going to, we've got a big uh, announcement from the US Open mid this month to give us an indication of what the tour looks like at, uh, at HBWTA and Grand Slam level. And that That'll guide us. But, you know, we're looking over late June uh, through July, putting out a series of events to give those players who are stuck in Australia opportunity to compete, opportunity to earn a little bit of prize money as well, uh, to, and be ready when the tour comes back on to be able to uh, go straight across.
3: Yeah, Tom, obviously there's been discussions about a, a state versus state or a city versus city sort of a scenario. What about putting together a tournament possibly an Australian championships where you have the best Australian players, including those guys at the very top. Obviously we see most of them compete in the wildcard playoff in December for that wildcard into the Australian open. But is there any opportunity to maybe put an event together and actually create a proper Australian championships where you crown the best Australian male or female player?
5: Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's, we've got a real, uh, I suppose, this real point in time where we've got opportunity with all the Aussies in Australia uh, to be actually able to do that. So we're looking at sort of three key events. There'll be a series of um, uh, pro match events where we'll provide opportunities in a round-robin format to players throughout June and July and then and have finals of that as well, whilst domestic borders are still shut in some some parts of Australia. So it provides opportunities locally for players who are either in Brisbane or in Sydney or in Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, to be able to play those matches, earn a bit of prize money. Uh, And once domestic borders reopen, and if we've still got a gap in the calendar, we're looking at that city versus city opportunity, which was spoken about, having players represent their city in playoff uh, for the title. And I think, as you said too, Sam, the opportunity to have Australian championships with all the best players in Australia later in the year, which is something we haven't had for a long time. Uh, So, yeah, there's a lot... A lot of opportunity in this period for us to make the most of, and also provide those opportunities for our players.
1: So, Tom, you're you're suggesting we're going to find out something. You'll be able to roll something out with a bit of detail in the next week.
5: Yep, we're looking forward to announcing in the next week what that looks like. Um, but yeah, with the with the, the first piece of that will definitely be though these uh, opportunities for pro matches and players with prize money until we sort of see whether the U.S. Open is on play clay court season is on and what the rest of the year looks like.
3: Tom, obviously, you were the tournament director for the ATP Cup, hugely successful event to start this year. If we don't get tennis up and running and the Davis Cup doesn't go ahead later in the year in the new format in which it started off last year, what happens to that team event side of the calendar? Is there any negotiation with the ITF at the moment around that Davis Cup, ATP Cup sort of clash of events? Not, not in terms of a calendar, but in terms of the style of event that's been created?
5: Look, we were really, really happy with the first ATP Cup uh, this year. The players loved it. The buy-in was great. Um, in terms of international audience, it had the highest international any- audience of any of those ATP events outside of their finals. So it was great up internationally as well and so we're we, you know we're powering ahead working with the ATP on making sure that we can deliver that event this year. Um, I think the, a lot of the feedback we've had from the international players over the past few weeks is if if the season doesn't go ahead they want to get out to Australia early they want to base themselves out here uh, get ready for the Australian summer and, and play right through the Australian summer so it's a great opportunity I think for all of us in Australia to have all the best players here on both the men's and women's side uh, in advance of Christmas uh, and also participating in those events and leading to the Australian Open. So it's, it's, a, it's a good opportunity for us to, you know, continue to grow that event further.
3: You talk about growing the Australian Summer. If if the world is still in this current situation yes. come January next year and the players are able to come down, quarantine here, we're obviously extremely lucky with closed borders and our current situation with the whole health crisis. Is there any chance the Australian Summer we can extend it or it would be extended out longer and the players may play the first two to three months of the tour here in Australia? Is is that a possibility?
5: Look, we're, the, the HP are working through a range of scenarios at the moment, and their their focus at this stage is on um, you know the uh, the US summer uh, through to the, an, an extended clay court season with uh, Roland Garros, and then uh, for the remainder of the season. I, I think everything's on the table and what that might look like. We certainly, you know, if the if the rest of the season doesn't go ahead. There's a real opportunity to have the players here and, and provide them opportunity in advance of Christmas uh, with and, you know different match opportunities, whatever that might look like, uh, and and it is a really. I think the point you raise is that you know the, the players go to South America in February, um, some go to Europe. What does that look like uh, at that point? And um, and so absolutely, there's there's discussions with the ATP around what certainly. December looks like uh, what January looks like, and 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 what they're going to do post Australian Open.
1: Tom, one thing we've been talking about, and Sam and I have had a lot of time with no tennis. We've been you know pulling it apart, looking at the uh, the, the the sport itself, the bigger picture, if you like, and and obviously the big talking point that comes up so often is you know trying to have more professionals make. A living out of the sport, and one thing we've spoken about, obviously, there's you know the riches of the Australian Open, the prize money, if you win all the way down to you know making that first round. What's been the discussion behind the scenes between you, obviously, all the other stakeholders in tennis, to see if we can maybe get a better distribution down the lower end by maybe taking it a little bit off the top end.
5: Yeah, and that's certainly a discussion that's happening right now. I mean, obviously the Tours, uh, along with the Grand Slams, came out with uh, some support to the players um, more broadly over the past month. But over the past four to five years, the investment that, um, that we've made in the Australian Open prize money has been really focused on the qualifiers and also the first couple of rounds. So the where the where that's increasing each year it's been increasing on average around 20 to 25 percent, up to 33 percent in some of those categories over yep. that end and and then a, you know low single digits but this year provides a further opportunity again to reassess that even for this particular year and look at how should that distribution be so we're at the start of those uh, discussions now working with the other grand slams in relation to what that looks like but I think it is definitely an opportunity for us to, to make some changes in the distribution of prize money, at the AO for this year.
3: Yeah, Tom, I think it's a, a huge thing that needs to be, be looked at. And obviously it's getting backing from players all over, but a little bit closer to home. Once again, we've been for the last few weeks here, BP, going through this whole performance review and the way Tennis Australia is changing that pathway and, Obviously, in the last week or so, there's been an appointment of the Head of Talent, Paul Vassallo. Can you tell us a little bit about him and where that's come from? I know a lot of our listeners are hearing about his appointment and are very interested, um, I guess, to know his background.
5: Yeah, look, Sam, Sam I'm probably the uh, the wrong person to ask on that. I've been very... A lot of what work we've been doing is on scenario planning for all our events this summer, and looking at every scenario we might have. But, um, look, it's, I think it's great to have Paul on board. I know it's been a really thorough and extensive process, Um but, yeah, probably uh, probably not the person to give you the detail in relation to uh, his appointment. Yeah,
1: we will uh, continue to follow that up uh, on the show in the next uh, few weeks. Tom, thank you. Uh, we await some detail to be... Certainly rolled out over the next week from a, a domestic point of view and and so much going on from an international uh, point of view, uh, D-Day, in the next couple of weeks for the US Open and the French uh, beyond that. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Great
5: to speak to you guys. Cheers.
1: Tom Larna, the uh, Chief Operating Officer at Tennis Australia. And just off the back of that, uh, Grothy, we have put in a request to speak to the Chair of Tennis Australia, Jane Hurdlicker, and that request has been in for a little while now we hope to have Jane on our show in, in the coming weeks who can speak from the board's point of view about the uh, performance review because it, there's quite a bit involved in that
3: yeah my understanding is she sat on that uh, panel with the selection of that role and there's going to be other roles that are going to be announced in the next week or so as well around this restructure and I think it's the transparency. People want to know who the people are that are going to try and lead us into the next phase of developing tennis in this country and trying to build us up. Once again, I think, obviously, Tom's an amazing administrator, what they did with the ATP Cup and him working so closely under Craig Tiley. They're doing so many good things in the event space. It's great to hear that they're going to create these domestic opportunities for, for match play and a plan around the Australian summer. But I think people still want to know more about this grassroots performance, talent, development pathway, and how that's going to work with the private sector. So hopefully we can speak to Jane and we can eventually speak to Paul also.
1: Yeah, we'll continue to follow that up. And, uh, and I know there's a lot of people out there who are really invested in the grassroots who follow our show, so we will certainly pay some attention to that. You can keep up to date with the world of tennis via our website any day. You can click on thefirstserve.com.au, go back and listen to all our past shows, our podcasts, Aussies Only and Crunching the Numbers, plenty of written articles as well, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We'll come back with more. We're off and running on a Monday night. The First Serve, your home of tennis.
2: The First Serve your home of tennis. The Green Life Group, your open space specialist in landscape construction, maintenance and project management.
1: Here on uh, SCN, great to have your company, Brett Phillips and Sam Groth. We're here thanks to uh, Green Life Group and Top Agents Real Estate. They are servicing all of Melbourne. If you uh, live here, you're looking to move to Melbourne, why wouldn't you? And looking to buy, rent, sell or have their property investment managed, make contact with Dave and his team, 958 4599 top-agents.com.au is their website and you can follow them on Facebook and Instagram as well. Well, now, as we know, uh, Sam, everyone goes on a uh, different journey in tennis, uh, takes different things from the game at the end of their careers. Our Aussies-only podcast in the last week has caught up with a twenty nine year old Sydney sider, David Barclay's his name. He's got an ATP ranking of one thousand eight hundred and fifty six. He's been as high as fifteen hundred and twenty. Combining playing for the last fifteen years and working as a coach at his father, Vince Barclay's Academy in Sydney.
4: Really lucky to be you know, have a tennis center and you know, I can still travel the world and play tennis. Like what more do you want? I don't want to be sitting in a in an office. You know, doing finance or whatever the main thing is is i don't want to be 50 and be like i wish i kept playing that's the biggest thing yeah like i, I would love for my ranking to get higher and i want to achieve a lot more of my tennis but still me playing as well is helping me for my future as a coach as a director of the tennis academy it's going to help me a lot more like i'm still practicing i'm still learning whatever i'm Learning on the tennis court for myself, I can transfer to my students and everything.
1: Well, that's just a little excerpt of a really interesting chat across uh, the weekend. Uh, plenty of people tuning into Aussies only, and everyone does go on a different uh, journey. Grothy, he hasn't reached any great heights in terms of his ranking, but he plays for different reasons, and he knows that he'll uh, run his father's academy, so he's got that as a safety net, and he's been able to travel, play a lot of tournaments here. I think he's played nearly fifty tournaments in Japan. One of his favourite destinations is Guam. Did you? Playing
3: Guam? I never went to Guam, mate. I uh, never got to go. It's nice, isn't Guam? Is Guam an island there somewhere? The yeah. Japanese island? Yeah. No, yep. never went to Guam. There you go. Probably won't so be Guam going to really Guam story. anytime soon.
1: No. At <laughs> well, least sixty-three Aussie males have got an ATP ranking, and they've all got different stories from Alex Demonor at the top all the way down to uh, those who are sort of between a thousand and two thousand. You can check out all our podcasts, thefirstserve.com.au forward slash podcast, some really good in-depth chats. All well, back on the 4th of May, we had the pleasure of uh, John Fitzgerald on our show introducing us to Tennis Australia's initiative, Home Court Tennis. Now, the idea was actually conceived in an academic paper titled uh, Driveway Tennis, written by a trio, including education project manager at TA Dr. Mitch Hewitt back in 2018 in response to Australia's declining physical activity levels. Now, the question was, what could tennis do about it? Home court tennis has been born through this COVID-19 period. Uh, tell us a bit more of what's developed since we spoke to Fitzy the last few weeks. He's the senior coaching leader at Tennis Victoria. Good friend of ours, of course. Uh, he's sitting the co-host chair plenty of times. Paul Aiken, great to have you back on the show.
4: Good evening, Jensen. Uh, it's uh, nice to hear you two playing so nicely in there. Um, look, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me on. And um, BP, you know how passionate I am about um, health and well-being. So uh, this, yes. this program is just all about addressing this sedentary uh, behaviour, really, that uh, has become a societal issue, and it's just getting families and kids moving and really uh, using it as a vehicle to build their uh, fu- fundamental motor skills, the ABCs, agility, balance, yeah. coordination, and I guess to try to see the, the family home as a tennis court or a series of tennis courts. You're only really limited by your imagination.
1: That is true and and John Fitzgerald alluded to that because we uh, played a little grab when we had Fitzy on and he was you know trying to beat the brick wall and you uh, don't often beat the uh, the brick wall, but this is this is what people have been forced to do. you know, tennis clubs have been shut. How do we keep a tennis racket in our hand? How do we keep uh, physically active? And home court tennis has really uh, caught on. I think there's a series of events this week, PA. I think there's a big forum uh, tomorrow. night. I think John Millman is going to be involved in that. And it, it's certainly something that people have really um, taken up.
4: Oh, exactly, BP. That one is going to be fantastic. And that's part of our three-part webinar series with John Millman, John Fitzgerald, Jay Deakin from Tennis Queensland Coach Development, um and associate professor Stephen rin Well they'll be uh posing some really intriguing questions to John about his formative years and what role um you know the home had in developing him potentially as a player. But you're quite right, BP, hitting against the wall, uh hitting over a table, um, using a balloon, letting the kids really um grasp that imagination that they have and just getting people moving. Um I, I must admit hitting up and down the driveway with my own mother and having to problem solve if he hit a crack or a bad bounce. And I just posed the question to uh, Grossi. Do you recall having some um, hits around the house, perhaps down a driveway against the wall with your brother Ollie or anything like that?
3: I do. I played a lot of bat tennis. You know, the little... Uh, remember the totem tennis poles? You'd have the yellow bats, you'd hit the ball. And we used to take those into the driveway and have some epic battles and... Yeah, a few few broken rackets from the younger brother who didn't like getting beaten up by his older brother, I tell you.
4: <laughs> well, this is the wonderful thing, and, and what makes the, the player and um, all the, uh, the machinations of that, and just, again, just letting your imagination and in such an, an, an autonomous environment where you can, it, it can be unstructured and just learning and getting that kinesthetic of. Feel for hitting the ball
2: around the house. Yeah,
1: brilliant stuff, uh, PA. In fact, you take me back. Uh, I'm, I'm diverting to another sport, but oh, I was one of those. I'd get home from uh, school. <laughs> I, I never had computer games at home. I was out playing. I'd, I had the pads on. I was playing my own test match in the backyard, playing cricket and keeping score and just hitting the ball against the wall. I mean, these these are things that are all part of uh, growing up, no doubt. Hey, just give that session tomorrow night a little bit of a plug. How can people uh, tune in, Paul?
4: Absolutely, and you've just mentioned... Uh, uh, Education Project Manager, Dr Mitch Hewitt, he's driving this and doing a spectacular job. But it's, yep. uh, if you go onto Facebook, the Tennis Australia site, and um, you can register there, and again you'll hear uh, John Fitzgerald, Jay Deacon, um, and Stephen Wren, and of course the, the lead act, John Millman, um, answering questions about his formative development and what, what uh, hitting around the house and what have you did for him.
1: Good man. Uh, hashtag Home Court Tennis, uh, follow it on social media, get involved, and... Keep yourself, uh, when you can't get into a tennis club, active and just fine-tuning all the fundamentals, uh, PA, getting those uh, right. Great to have you back on the show, Paul. That's right, BT. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Jen. Bye for now. PA, there he is. One of the finest and uh, lives in a very affluent home uh, in Melbourne, let me tell you. Now, Samuel, over the last uh, few weeks, we've spent a bit of time focusing in on the Tennis Australia Athlete Performance Review, speaking to... TA themselves, private sector coaches, a parent of a young talent with aspirations last week, and catch up on all those shows if you have missed us the last few weeks, thefirstserve.com.au forward slash live dash radio. And the question we've been asking, I mean, that what is the best path to make it on the world stage? We know that the college pathway in the US has been a very attractive option. Now, Sam, I received a bit of correspondence uh, during the week in the First Serve mailbag from Julie Lee, who listens to our show. She lives in beautiful uh, Noosa, half her luck. She was originally from Brisbane, uh, fairly well-known up there in the tennis Queensland community. Uh, very good family, friends with the Millmans, and also the Bardies. Now, her three kids went through the college system over in the US, and I did catch up with Julie earlier today just to get her take as a parent, having had her kids go through that.
0: Our youngest finished four years ago. Uh, they're very close in age. They're only three years apart. So we had three of them over there at one stage. I'll talk about our eldest first. She was a decent junior player, and in her case, she was relatively easy to place because she had an ITF ranking, no WTA ranking, but she didn't do a lot of travel overseas or anything to do anything tournament so she was relatively easy to place then our middle son he was desperate to go because his sister went and heard all these good things but he his level of play was his high school team he was in the first at Churchy and that was his level not having a high ranking in the ITF or anything like that he was a little bit in a different boat there and then my youngest she was much the same she just played local tournaments in Queensland.
1: What's the biggest thing do you think your three children have taken out of the experience of being part of a college setup in terms of trying to better their tennis career but also academically and the benefits of them going down this track?
0: They had to learn to grow up pretty quickly because they were out of home straight from high school and had to learn to fend for themselves in terms of you know financially cook feeding themselves being responsible for managing their study along with the tennis program which is always a bit of a shock to some of the players that go over there they really have to manage well their time they're training every day they're in the gym program and they have to study and pass the exams so in each of our three children's case that first year was a real adjustment period but then they got to grips with it they just enjoyed the whole experience they had their ups and downs no by no means an easy ride you are treated as an adult and you're often 15 to 18 hours away from your home support so if there's a problem can't immediately get mum or dad on the phone to support you but yeah they spent the whole four years there Um, they've come out my son's got a double degree from university and the other degrees in health sciences marketing communications my eldest daughter's put that into practice back here actually my son's ended up being a tennis coach tremendous benefit in terms of growing up
1: one thing we were talking about off air earlier today was just the process of getting into a college and There are certainly support agencies here in Australia that can uh, certainly assist you. But in your case, Julie, you and the family did this off your own back. Can you take us through the process of doing that?
0: Well, initially, we did have some talks with some of the agencies to try and get the kids placed. But the more I spoke to them, the more I realised that some of the agencies, the contact person is an actual coach. They have a number of people that they have to place each year. That's going to be a subjective decision. Decision on the coach's part as to where that player might fit it might be division 1 division 2 or indeed a junior college which is also an option so I became very proactive in just making contacts around tournaments for instance finding players that had been on a scholarship talking to their parents finding other coaches that might have contacts over there as well and just getting a lot of information and then contacting the colleges direct a lot of the coaches in the US very pro a player getting in contact with them. It mm-hmm. shows initiative and drive, etc. Don't get me wrong, it takes time and effort to do it. But if you can get a contact and, for instance, write to a coach and say, this person has recommended I contact you, I feel that the college coach will take more notice of your email than someone that just say, I'm Joe Blow looking for a tennis scholarship. Being very proactive, as I said, takes time and effort just to become a little bit familiar with the college system, different conferences and where you might fit into that. I remember also looking at rosters of US colleges and seeing if there was an Australian player there and in this day and age you can usually work out how to contact them and perhaps you might even know of them because tennis is a fairly small world. Being proactive, getting contacts basically is what we did. In my youngest case we did a recruitment trip so we got three or four colleges interested in her and we went over and spent airfares ourselves on visiting those colleges which was very beneficial in her case because the colleges will host a player for a weekend. You'll be in a dorm with some of the players on the team and you'll get to know them and you'll get a tour of the university and you will know what you're in for more than if you just sit back here on a computer and say oh this person you know I'm going to this university.
1: So that is the voice of Julie Lee. I had a chat to her earlier this afternoon. Her three kids went through the U.S. college system, uh, Grothy, as we, I suppose, just look at the whole sport in the last six to eight weeks and present all the different options. It's an interesting uh, take and it's one that obviously a lot of parents have considered and will continue to consider for their children.
3: Yeah, and we've obviously spoken about it as a a really viable option for people either to continue their tennis or use it as a stepping stone to the pro level. And, you know, like anything, I think every player needs to, to look at what's their best option. And, Again, we mentioned it, there's so many changing scenarios right now about what's going to be offered here in Australia and you know, with this new performance space that's going to work from 15 to 23, if you're in there and you're able to get that support, it's probably viable. If you're not, it doesn't mean you can't still make it. And you look at some of the players that have come out and gone through college, you know, John Isner or Somdev Devarman and... Daniel Collins, there's players that have come through that system and been highly successful at tour level as well.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And we're going to add to our podcast series this week, uh, In the Huddle. Watch out for the release of that a little bit later on this week, which you'll be able to access through our website, The First Serve, run by Study and Play USA, to really give you a great podcast to listen to about getting into uh, college tennis and college sport in general over there in the US. Uh, Yarra Tennis Coaching, Melbourne's award-winning coaching program, is out at Eaglemont Tennis Club. Since 2002, they're back up and running. The courts have uh, reopened for the head coach, Shane Scrutton, and all his team. You can discover more at yarratennis.com.au. Back with more here on The First Serve.
2: The First Serve. Your home of tennis. The Green Life Group, your open space specialist in landscape construction, maintenance, and project management. Check out glgcorp.com to discover more.
1: Welcome back to the first uh, Brett Phillips and Sam Groth on this uh, Monday night. We have a quick fire hour, it goes uh, pretty quickly. We're going to check in with our Resident physio, as we do on a month-to-month basis. Uh, Rob Brandon here on the first serve from Evolve Physio Group. They're at 492 St Kilda Road in the city. Over 25 years clinical experience. Their collective of practitioners allows them to collaborate proactively, helping prevent injuries, fast-tracking diagnosis and recovery, and giving their clients every opportunity to get the best out of their body, no matter whether you're an avid gardener, a weekend warrior, a lunchtime walker, an elite athlete, any category. For more details, head to EvolveSports. Physio. Rob, welcome back. Nice to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Brett. Rolls around pretty quick, doesn't it? It does. It does. Certainly, uh, one of the the more common tennis injuries, and we're seeing a lot of those social tennis players uh, hit the courts again. Who, you know, have obviously uh, been in. Uh, isolation and not uh, getting out there uh, pounding the courts every week but especially in that older plus the uh, our category well now Grothy's not there yet I'm, I'm not there yet mate plus. come on don't
3: include me in that
1: <laughs> is is the calf uh, Rob um, wh- what's the most common thing that tennis players tend to report happen when they actually strain their calf which we might have a few strained calves out there locally
6: uh, yeah, yeah. I guess it sometimes gets called the old man injury, doesn't it? Um, but uh, I think the most common thing that we hear, it's certainly when someone's done a really good job of it, is they they feel like someone kicked them in the back of the leg. Um, and the reason for that is because you know usually it's a moment when they're they're pushing off to maybe chase a low ball or something, uh, and their calf muscles under an extreme amount of tension. And, um, and the feeling of feeling like someone kicked them in the back of the leg is because that muscle actually just lets go uh, and it makes quite a big stump. Um and, uh, and quite often someone will sort of stop in their tracks and, you know, and turn around and try and see if someone was there or they might sort of report they felt like someone hit a ball at them or something like that but uh, it's a really distinctive um, uh, moment that just really stops them in their tracks.
3: And obviously calf, it's a very general term. We're not talking about just one muscle when you mention the calf, are we? Uh,
6: no, no, yeah, there's a couple of different muscles that make up the calf. Um, so the, you know, the chunky part of the calf at the top um, is actually a muscle called your gastrocnemius is its uh, technical term. Um, and it's, it's, actually, it's got two heads to it. There's uh, one on the inside and one on the outside. Um, and certainly the most common injury is to strain the, the medial head, which is the one on the inside. Um, which is the one that actually gets put under the most stress when we're, when we're pushing off. Um, but in addition to your, your gastroc, there's uh, another smaller muscle, which often gets forgotten, um, which is called your soleus. And, and both of your, your soleus and your gastroc attach into uh, your Achilles tendon. So um, we need to be thinking of both of those when we're addressing someone's rehab. Um, because when you're, you're doing just a simple calf raise, you know, when you're standing up, that's more primarily addressing your gastroc. Um, but when you're doing maybe a seated calf raise or if you've bent your knee, then that's more addressing the, the soleus muscle.
3: So when you talk about all those all those couple of different muscles in there and the rehabbing of them, I'm guessing with the differences in the muscles, not all uh, calf injuries will be the same.
6: Uh, no, yeah, exactly. So um, I think you know something that probably often gets a little bit misconstrued um, is, is, you know, not all, tend- not all muscle tears are the same because we're not just always damaging muscle fibres. Uh, you know, sometimes we can actually damage the muscle, um, the tendon. Uh, we can also damage um, some of the structure that surrounds the muscle, which is called the epimythium. Um And so, that, you know, the, the rehab for each of those, uh, or certainly probably more the time that it takes for those to recover Can vary very differently if we do damage the the central tendon um, so those are the ones that I was talking about before where someone feels like they've had a real you know kick in the back of the leg and they've had that moment that stops them um, is usually where the tendon that runs through the the center of the muscle is actually given way Um, so those are ones that you know they're much more severe they can take sometimes you know three or four months actually to really recover from where the more sort of just more muscle fiber strain yeah, you know, we can get
3: back from those sometimes within two or three weeks. And the process for rehabbing, you talk three to four months. How long have you got to stay off a calf if you if you do something serious to it?
6: Um, yeah, look, usually those more severe ones. Um, you know, I'd definitely sort of put someone on crutches. I'd uh, get them off it. Uh, you know, sometimes even put them in a uh, one of those moon boots, a cam walker. Uh, and and really just get them unloading it for, you know, often even sort of two or three weeks. Like that can be really painful to walk around on and you can be very uh, inhibited and and, um, lose a lot of function. Um, So uh, where there were minor ones, you know, you might be hobbling for a day or two. uh, But once your pain has subsided from... Um, just general walking and activity. You know, then we can start the process of getting some strengthening going, and, and maybe addressing any factors that have maybe led to the creation of the problem. Um, Where more, the more severe ones, we really need to give them some good time for that tissue to to go through that repair process, get some uh, healing and scarring started um, before we can start any real um, strengthening and rehab.
1: You do the calf, Grothy, in your Never. career.
3: Never. I've got strong calves, mate. Come on. Yeah. Extreme flexibility. Yeah,
6: it's pretty, it's actually, it's one of those ones that's pretty rare in the professional ranks. You know, we yeah. probably more commonly tend to see them develop uh, overuse injuries of, the, say, the Achilles. Um, you know, it's not that common for the, the pros to be actually mm. tearing muscles. Um, I mean, I think uh, Johnny Millman had a bit of an issue with his calf last year. Um, or he might have sort of done something in the ATP Cup, I think, from memory and, uh, and then carried it a little bit into the, uh, the Aussie Open. Um, but, uh, you know, and that, and that probably around that time of the year when it's the start of the season and people are just that little bit less conditioned or um, had a, maybe a harder pre-season and haven't quite had some good recovery from that yet, you know, they're at a greater risk. But, um, yeah, it's rare that you see the, the pros um, doing a, a muscular injury like that.
1: Well, if you're out in uh, clubland, you've uh, maybe pinged the calf in the last few weeks. Uh, whatever injury you might have, uh, there's only one team to go and see, and that is Evolve Sports Physio, Evolve Physio Group at 492 St Kilda Road. You can go there, you can uh, look at their website, EvolveSports.physio. Rob and all his team, very happy to look after you uh, right throughout the week, mate. Always good to have you on the show, and hopefully people are going to just take a, bit, uh, take a bit of care with the calf. Yeah, no worries, guys. Thanks for having me on. Rob Brandom joining us, our resident physio, and uh, we'll uh, check in about a month's time. Starting from Scratched, offer that premium glass repair. They specialise in the removal of window scratches. I'm going out to, to see uh, Macca this week. Uh, bringing it back to its former glory, whether it's uh, scratches in the sliding door, uh, to the local milk bar that's been graffiti tagged with a knife, they can remove it. Look at their website and get them on site where you need them. Starting from scratched.com Grothy and I got a couple of things to rattle through before we close next on The First Serve.
2: The First Serve, your home of tennis. The Green Life Group, your open space specialist in landscape construction, maintenance and project management. Check out glgcorp.com to discover more.
1: Fred Phillips, Sam Groth on a Monday night. Now, Marit Seffen, what a, an amazing man he is, Sam. I'll never forget the night at the ATP Cup when I walked out from the court announcing duties uh, fairly late. I was waiting for the, uh, the car that takes you back to the hotel and out from the bushes came this mad Russian who'd been having a dart. He's he a different cat. Wanda Beck. Hello, hello. Now, Marit Saffin has declared that Frenchman, I'm missing too, Fabrice Santoro, as his toughest opponent. He's quote, "The magician blew my mind. I'd rather have a root canal than play Santoro." And he only won on a couple of occasions out of about nine head-to-heads. Who was your toughest, Sam? Apart from Rafa at the French, that speaks for itself. But who was yeah. who was a guy you played a few times that you just found really tricky?
3: It's a good question. I try to rack my brain. I'm not sure I played too many guys consistently. Um, I know in doubles, the French pair, Herbert Mahu took me down at a bunch of Grand Slams. US Open, I think, in a round of 16. Wimbledon, a round of 16. Um, I always struggled a little bit against that pairing. Obviously, a great doubles pairing. But, yeah, I just couldn't seem to get over the line against them, unfortunately. And it was in some big matches, too.
1: See, it's amazing. You know, when, when Bernard Tomic got to, you know, 17 in the world and and you thought, this is, this is no surprise, this kid's got incredible talent, all these points of difference, he takes the pace off the ball, you know, blokes are expecting the ball to be coming quickly onto their racket, they feed off their pace, here is Bernie throwing all this junk, and he's, uh, you know, dipping slices down around the ankles, and all these unique shots, I mean, this is why, I suppose, there's the disappointment that it's all fallen away so badly, because you do like seeing those players on the tour who do it a bit differently.
3: Yeah, I played Bernie in the third round of Australian Open one yep. year and he makes you or he made you feel uncomfortable. There was a reason for a guy that wasn't super athletically gifted yeah. that he was so tough to play the way he read the play and sliced and diced you and moved you around the court and Yeah, I mean it's disappointing when you talk about Bernie to see where he's ended up now.
1: Now, Roger Federer, just to close uh, tonight, has made history in the past week, becoming uh, the first tennis player to top uh, Forbes' uh, list of highest-paid athletes. So, Forbes estimating that Federer's annual earnings at one hundred and six point three million dollars. So he's just edged out Cristiano Ronaldo at one hundred and five mil, Lionel Messi at one hundred and four mil, who were the only other athletes to surpass uh, the one hundred million milestone.
3: Yeah, I guess that big Uniqlo deal that he signed. Coming to the forefront, I tell you, he's not regretting that signing that one. I think he's uh I think he set his family up for future years there, BP.
1: Do you think this is this period of no tennis and he was gonna be out for a little while anyway with injury, do you think it's gonna really help him and maybe no. see one big final chapter in the Federer career or it'll hinder
3: him? No. I think it I think it hurts. I mean, obviously he was gonna be out with the injury anyway, but at the same time, when you spend time out, it takes time to get yourself up and going again and He's only getting older, and we've been saying it for a long time, but he's going to come back another year older, um, have a long time off. His body might feel great, but at that age, to get the competitive juices going and to find your feet, it's going to be tough. certainly is. There's the music,
1: Sam. I'm going to go and chef something up. I'm absolutely starving. I'm sure something's probably been already uh, prepared. You'll just walk straight to the dinner table.
3: I can smell a chicken soup, actually. Britt's got one going right now. It smells unbelievable
1: magnificently done uh we'll talk to you next week sammy thank you as always
3: bp thank you appreciate it. enjoy your week
1: sam Groth thanks to 100 words a network of active local communities and their aim is to improve men's mental health and reduce male suicides they are doing a beautiful job we're right behind them on the first serve check out their great work at 100words.com.au we'll talk to you uh six o'clock same time here on scn next monday night